Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. If you have a Bible, I would welcome you to turn to the Old Testament book of Haggai. It is page 667 in the church Bibles. Um, we, this is our second Sunday in the book. We've been, we just started. We're working verse um, by verse. And um, this morning, we read the whole chapter last time. I'm just going to read verses 7, 8, and 9. All right. Haggai chapter 1, page 667 in the church Bibles. And here we are, verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that the house which remains ooh, a, a ruin <laughs> while each of you is busy with his own house. All right, let's, let's pray. Just, just a line from a hymn. Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said if, if we are weak, we should come to him. No one else can give us strength and be our strength. We should come to him. And so, Father, that's what we're doing. We thirst and we are weak more than what we know, at least for me. And so I ask that you would quench our thirst and may our weakness be mended only with your strength so that Christ may be in all and in all as your word is preached. Amen. So not many babies look better in a onesie than my son Jared did back in the day. If you don't know what a onesie is, it's a very efficient piece of clothing. It's a couple of snaps that covers all the major areas. And when he wore it, he looked so cute. Um, how cute? Well, so cute that I still have one of his one onesies. It's in a box in a, in, a, in a place, and every once in a while, honestly, I take the thing out and look at it, and I, I love him, so I like to think about him every age and stage of his life. And so I do that on occasion, but here's the thing. You know, the Lord willing, the next time I go see Jared, if I brought that onesie with me and said to Jared, hey, Jared, for old time's sake, okay. Can you, can you put that on for old dad? <laughs> Not only would that be weird and wrong, probably illegal in some states, <laughs> the onesie wouldn't fit him, right? He's well past that day, and that day for him will never be again. And if you were with us last time, by dent of principle, that, that's how we began our sermon in this Old Testament book of Haggai. The complete salvation story of God's people is still, at this point in the story, it's still flowing towards Jesus Christ in redemptive history. It's an incomplete story here that will find its completeness only in Christ when he goes to the cross. And therefore, and this is so important, if we ignore the cross of Jesus Christ in this story, even in the Old Testament, then not only have we just turned this into a moralistic sermon, with no power to change anyone, you know, leaving us kind of like empty or maybe prideful, depending on how we approach it. 
But at this point, if we do that, then we're going to be forced to relate to God and forced to relate through Jesus to Jesus Christ only through our works. Okay? And this, this is what it means. It means there would be no hope of any care or any blessing or any rescue from God unless we would not only do the right thing, but inevitably keep doing the right thing if we want or if we need good things from God. Now, I can't live that way. I am not that good. You have to answer that question for yourself, but I know me. So what is happening here in this story is a unique and unrepeatable situation that has gospel implications. It's going to exalt in the free grace of God. It's going to show the tremendous patience of God with his people. It's going to show that God wants sins to be forgiven, and God delights in this. And it's going to show us how God knows at this stage in the history in the people of God in the Old Testament, this rebuilding of the temple, it means that if that temple gets built, then no one need remain unforgiven by God because of their sins. There's going to be an actual place where substitution can take place. And no one need to be separated from God's presence again. Okay? So the temple message was God was making a way so that sin-filled men and women could be in his presence through a blood sacrifice and through that ministry of the high priest. So here it's an incomplete in this sense. All that is taking place here, it points us to the one who will bring perfection the one who will faultlessly achieve the goal of forgiveness of all sins for all time in Jesus Christ. And in keeping with that, remember the reading that we just read this morning from John 50, uh, John chapter, uh, uh, was it 7? Uh, destroy this temple, or chapter 2. Destroy this temple, Jesus said. So he was looking at the actual temple, a physical stick and brick building. Destroy that thing, and in three days I will rise, I will raise it again. Excuse me. So at the time, his listeners had no idea what he was talking about, because here's the reason why. Their eyes were fixed on themselves and in the law and the temple. So both the leaders there and the people, by dint of the leaders, they were mangling everything up. So at the time of Haggai, at this point in God's plan to save the world from sin, the temple, which they didn't have, needed to be rebuilt. And it was pointing to the need of a person who had arrived, who needed to arrive to complete what the temple was pointing to and started. Now, it's one of the best things about being a Christian, isn't it? That, that your sins are forgiven if, 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 if a person... You know, if a person confesses the sins of other people more than their own sins, then they probably would not be, you know, delighted about what I'm going to say. It's like no big deal. But because our sins are forgiven, we are part of the family of God. We have the very righteousness of Jesus in us. We have the promise and, and, and hope of sanctification. We have the promise of glorification one day, a perfect body in a perfect place past death. We are in union with Jesus Christ right now because his sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. We're in union with each other because our sins are forgiven. We have promised care, promised peace with God because our sins are forgiven. If our sins aren't forgiven, then none of that is true. And of course, we have God's presence in our life. And so, the promise of God, all of it, every promise 
hinges on the fact that our sins are committed, are, are, are forgiven. It, hence, I almost said the word, sins that we still commit. But it's been dealt with. That's why the gospel is good news. Three points. We're only going to get to two. Number one, God speak. God speak. So, so if you look down in your Bible there, um, let's just think of when did God speak? Well, you see in the opening verse there, it's very precise. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. Now, in common English, that is August 29th. 520 B.C. Okay, so how do we know that? Well, there's all kinds of things that we can do. The dates themselves, the Jewish calendar, archaeological discoveries. But that day, August 29th, 520 B.C., was about three months after they had harvested the grain and harvested the corn in June, latter June and July. And it's toward the end of the fruit tree harvest then, and are near the end, or beginning, excuse me, of the fruit tree harvest. So you had the, the corn and wheat had already been harvested, and the fruit was coming, and they were kind of like in the middle, and that is exactly when God spoke to them for good reason. Because in a couple of days, there was going to be a Jewish festival, the first day of the month, which, which they would have time to basically stop and rest. Think of it as a holiday or a holy day, but it was religious. They had to stop working. They had to celebrate the goodness of God and all the things that they've enjoyed by way of their crops, and they worshiped. And so at that time, what they could do is they could look at the quantity of their harvest and the quality of their harvest. And to some degree, they'd be able to look forward to the fruit harvest and see if it was going to be good or not so good. Okay, so that's when God spoke. Perfect timing. Now, who did God speak through? Well, he's the head of the book, Haggai. And Haggai is a prophet. Okay, so if you're new to the Bible, what is a prophet? Well, a prophet was a person in the Old Testament whose primary function was to serve as God's ambassador or representative. And they would communicate the exact words of God to God's people. So Haggai's name, remember, it means hilarious. He is called a prophet. And a prophet never spoke on his own authority. They never shared their own opinions. But they delivered the message God himself gave them. So you think of it as dictated words from God. Now, not all the Bible is not written that way. But when a prophet spoke, it was dictated words from God to them, to then the people. And because God does all things well, it was just the right time. He sends Haggai at harvest time, a harvest that was disappointing to the people of God to say the exact right thing. All right, so we have the when, August 29th, 520 B.C., harvest time, the who, Haggai. Now let's think about whom or to whom God spoke to. And you have to be careful here because you look at the text, the first people that God spoke to was not the general population, but rather two leaders, Okay, the end of verse 1, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the high priest. Now, the first thing you say, is that a big deal? It's a big deal. And let me explain why. First, you have a prophet in Haggai, you have a king and a priest. 
That is the ministry of Jesus in the, in the New Testament. In fact, it just jumps out on the page. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. And only in Jesus do we have the final completion of those offices. So these three men, Haggai the prophet and the two men that I spoke of, are all, if you would, typologies are pointing to the fact that the one who can complete those ministries, he's coming. So as the prophet, Jesus teaches us the word of God. As the high priest, he sacrificed himself for our sins once and he intercedes for us to God's throne. And as king, he rules, the king of kings, he rules, he cares for us, and he, and he cares for creation. So again, look at, look at your Bible at the end of verse 1, Zerubbabel, the governor, the king. He had the responsibility of making sure God's will had been done. He had the responsibility to protect the people from enemies and to care for the people and to lead them on the right path. And Zerubbabel was not doing this. And then you have Joshua, the high priest. As a priest in the Old Covenant, he was to offer gifts and offer sacrifices on the altar to God on behalf of God's people. He was the mediator between God and the people. And of course, he was not doing that as well. All right. That, that's the first reason. Second reason is, is this is a big deal because if you look in the whole chapter, their names. Remember how last week I had to read all those names three different times? Right? And whenever you see re repetition in the Bible, it's, it's the author's way, it's God's way of saying, pay attention to this. This is really important. Pay attention. And as we work through this, we're going to see that by God's grace, he acts on these guys two times. So there's things that only God will do in them so that the solution that they're looking for, that God wants, will come. Just to say that God is the God of all grace. Third reason why this is important is because there, there's, there's this juxtaposition, this comparison. There's a lot of them. The first one is right here. Do you see it in verse 2? Um, the people are saying it's not time to build. Okay, so there's a juxtaposition between what God says and what the people are saying. Verse 2, the people are saying it's not time to build. Verse 8, God says it is. Now, let's just take a minute. This is not a rabbit show, but let's just think through this. Why, why are the people saying it's not time to build the temple? I mean, had God not been clear enough? Remember last time we learned that God opened the door right away. King Cyrus, the king before King Darius, 16 years ago, he said it was time for the temple to be rebuilt. So he sent people back. He provided everything that they would need. There'd be no cost to the people to, to build the temple, just physical energy. And in fact, he said all the stuff that was stolen from the temple, the gold and the treasury, that was going to be returned. So just think, they had all the resources they needed. They had all the skill required. They had time. They had the blessing of God from heaven. And they had the blessing and the go-ahead of the king on earth at that time to rebuild. They had a great start. Two years, they laid the foundation, but then it all stopped. Okay, okay why does it stop? Well, let me give you a, the best reason, okay? Whenever God, this is a general pattern in the Old and New Testament. Whenever God begins to move and expand, if you would, his gospel reach, in the sense that if the temple gets rebuilt, then people's sins can be atoned for, and people all over the world will know that that God forgives sins by his own sacrifice or by substitute. 
And so, again, this is purposeful. If you ask, why have people historically, by nature, always opposed the, the biblical message of substitutionary atonement, that someone else has to pay for our sins, and that God willingly pays the penalty of our sins, either in sacrifice in the Old Testament, but in finality in a person, his son, why such opposition? I can give you three. Here's the first one. Because the evil one and evil people, I don't care if they're religious or not, they do not want sins to be atoned for by a merciful God. Because if sins are atoned for for by a merciful God, then there's no longer any distinction between all the different types of races and faces and tastes and liberties that human beings enjoy on this earth. Right? Because now, since sin has been dealt with, every Christian in God's eyes, we're all the same. We are all his children. We're under the same care. We have different gifts, absolutely, but we have equal standing no matter, no matter what we have or what we don't have. No matter how good we are or honestly how not so good we are. So that every Christian is complete only because of Jesus. Every Christian is forgiven only because of Jesus. Every Christian is perfect in God's sight only because of Jesus. We're united to him and in the eyes of him who matters most. Not one blemish does he see. Because all are one in Christ. And by nature, people hate that. Because you you lose your power. Now, you know, if there's no Jesus, we can separate and we can judge and we can condemn and we can compare. You know, if we're just a little better than people over there, a little bit of honor, come on, just, just a little bit of honor. And rarely would we be confessional about our sins. Critical of others, sure. So when the temple would be rebuilt, then sin would be atoned for. And just to say, how desperate were those to, who, who were opposing the building of the temple at this time? This is from Ezra 4.4, okay? One of the things they did, and I'm quoting from the Bible, they even hired counselors to discourage them. So they hired counselors to go to the building site to discourage the people who were building the temple as God commanded. Just like, you know, that's one of the, if you had a time machine... And you have five places you could go back. I might pick one of that place. What does that look like? That's the first reason. The second reason, because our sins have been atoned for, when the accuser and the condemner of the brothers and sisters in Christ and the evil one and all his evil minions, when they come, they have nothing but old, tired, depleted, powerless, sin-already-dealt-with words to God. You know what that's like? It's like your parents still being angry about something you did when you were eight years old and you told them you were sorry, but you know, you're 30 years old and they keep bringing it up. This does not happen in God's kingdom. The third reason is God in substitutionary atonement, when that happens, he is truly seen as the God of all grace. And that's the storyline of the Bible. This is the gracious God doing what needs to be done, what has to be done, so that people can be forgiven. And what does this gracious God do? He takes the sin on himself. Now, the only trouble, or one of the big things that people would have trouble with that, if they don't think they're a sinner. 
And so now I hope, hope you see that, that by nature, human beings don't want atonement. They want nothing to do with grace, not by nature. I mean, okay, yeah, personally, when we've done really, really wrong, please, grace. But, you know, when our neighbor's like, ah, give them what they deserve. This is the Bible. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Mercy. Titus, slander no one. Be peaceable and considerate and show true humility to every human being. That's the God of all grace. That's the Bible. And so when a person grasps the implications of this, there is enormous freedom to be part of a culture and not simply condemn culture. There's enormous freedom to relate to God, not not just, you know, not through strict conformity to rules and things like that. No, to relate to God beginning and end through Jesus Christ. So at this point in the story, total propitiation, total atonement for sins has not come. It would come in Jesus. Still, what seems to be the case here is the leaders who God is speaking to, they're struggling, as we all would admit we do, between the invisible God saying, build the temple, and the visible people saying, no, now's not the time. And every leader worth their salt understands that tension. And that's why God begins with the leaders first. That's number one, God speaks. Number two, God says. And right away, if you look at your Bible, this is so beautiful. God is essentially telling them to think things through. Verse two, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, not yet. Okay, not yet. And you can't see it in the English. It's easier in the Hebrew. But the transition then goes from the leaders, verse 2, to now the people of God in verse 3. It would read like this, and came the word of God. It's transition. Talking to the leaders first, and came the word of God. Now to the people, is it time for you, even you too? And now the emphasis is on the people. Okay? Is it time for you to be living in your panel houses Why my house remains in ruin. So there it is. Another juxtaposition. The first one is people say don't. God says do. The second comparison is your paneled houses in God's ruined house. Now notice that God begins with a question. Right? It's a rhetorical question. In other words, and and parents think through this, and and leaders as well, because we can learn from God here. God doesn't say right away, hey, build the temple now. He could, but he doesn't. He says, verse 5, give careful thought to your ways. This is a literal translation. Set your heart upon your actions. Now, I don't know if this will help you, but it helped my wife and I a long time ago. We were taught this by someone else. And they said, when you go to a place with your kids, they, they told us to just talk to them and have them think about what you're going to do. So you're going to go to the store, church, whatever. They said, tell them what you're going to do. Tell your kids what to expect. Tell them what you expect from them and tell them what they should expect from you. And, you know, if you want to tell them if everything goes good, you know, ice cream, candy, something like that, which that was us as a family. We liked that. It was really good advice. This is what happened. It helped us because it made things, you know, slow down a whole lot. Because we had to do some talking before we went out and did stuff. And we all had to think. 
As parents, we had to think about what we were going to say. And as kids, even on like a kid level, they were going to have to think about what we were going to say and what they were going to do in light of what they were saying. That's much of God here. What God does is, is he, he can't quote from Aretha Franklin because he was around before her. But remember, you better think. You better think about what you're trying to do to me. You know that song? There's another song, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Check yourself. Verse 4, is it time for you yourself to be living in your panel houses while this house remains a ruin? That's the question. Is it? Verse 5, here it is. Give careful thought to your ways. Set your heart upon your actions. Now, this is what we need to know. It is not that nice paneled houses are morally bad. That would be so foolish. It's just that the temple isn't built. And that was bad. Now, last week, I kind of alluded to the fact that if you were going to get paneled housing in the ancient world, it meant you had to get that stuff exported into Jerusalem. It was high-dollar material, exported in, a lot of work to get it in, and a lot of work to install it. So what God is suggesting here is a lot of elegance and a lot of luxury at the expense of the temple. So think of it again, the juxtaposition, a beautiful house. Again, nothing morally wrong with that, but the temple was just there, just in ruins. So it wasn't a lack of money, but a lack of will. And the inability of the people to see their need of a temple, which stopped the rebuilding of the temple. Now, you've got to know this, okay? It would be so wrong for me, right here, to go to, now, do you do that with the house of God and God's church? I mean, it's kind of easy, and you would think, think, but you can't. Here's the reason why. This church building is not the same as the temple. This is not the place where sin get or got dealt with. Sin gets dealt with in a person now, Jesus Christ, and not a place. It's so important that you understand that. So apparently there, they had got, they got accustomed to a way of life without a temple. Remember Nehemiah, when he was surrounded, he was walking the area, kind of looking at this wall, it's just, you know, nothing. And he tells the people, don't, don't you see the trouble that you're in? Verse 4, verse 5, talk to yourself. Consider your ways. Don't, don't you see the trouble you're in? There's no place to meet with me, and there's no place where sins can be atoned for. And, and this is so wise of God. Do you see in verse 4, the capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, God Almighty? Well, Lord is the covenant name of God. So when the person would hear that, it meant, it meant authority, it meant security, it meant privilege and responsibility. And the Almighty here, that's another way of saying the Lord of hosts. It's a protective term. It means that the, this God is invincible. This is the God, and I'm quoting now from Anchor Bible Dictionary. This God commands and controls the entire universe and its many angelic bodies. This God has a myriad of angel armies and is described as controlling human armies as well. So when God says, what he says there, this is, you know, the Lord God Almighty or Lord Almighty is this is, this is his glory. This is his power. This is authority. This is his reach. And this is his covenant commitment to these people. So what God is saying is that he prizes them and he's going to protect them. 
So he says then, I want you to think through the implications of your house doing so well and my house in ruins. Give careful thought to your ways. Let me just give you, this is, this is um, my own kind of definition of this. Get beyond the surface to find the underlying cause of your dissatisfaction with your way of life and where it has led you. Okay, again, get beyond the surface to find the underlying cause of your dissatisfaction with your way of life and where it, where it has led you. Now, just take that personal. Okay? Let's say you are here this morning and you're dissatisfied. Get beyond the surface to find the underlying cause of your dissatisfaction with your way of life and where it has led you. And then God tells them, verse 6, do you see it there? You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you, you never have your full. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put a person then with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Dissatisfaction. Temporal signs pointing to the need of a temple. And what God does is he answers. He gives them the answer to their careful thinking by telling them what to do. Okay, so there's dissatisfaction. Go up into the mountain and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. Okay, now let's just think about that. That's a really important verse, okay? Literally, the word pleasure, remember in verse 8, it's propitiate. It means to be pleased or to be satisfied as in a debt is paid, okay? As a debt is paid. And the word honored so that I may be honored, is the, is the Hebrew word kabod. Okay, there's lots of words in the Hebrew language for honored. This one is, is really specific. It literally means heavy or many in number. And the idea is to make heavy, to make, make the weight of the goodness of God and the glory of God known in a great number of places. Now, when you look at verse 8, just look at it, please, if your Bible's open. Either God is saying, make me happy by building me a temple so I can be honored in it. Okay, he's just saying that. But here's the thing. If that is true, there is nothing distinctively different there about God than any other pagan God. All the pagan gods acted self-centeredly. Okay, you build me a temple and I'll be happy, happy and I'll be honored in it. And it make me happy or else. That sounds kind of human. Doesn't sound divine. So either that or God was saying, if the temple is built, I will be pleased because your sins, which make me oppose you and make it impossible for you to be with me, they're going to be propitiated. They're going to be forgiven, dealt with. And I will be honored heavily. I will be made known everywhere that I am the God who forgives sins by the giving of some other sacrifice other than human beings. Okay? That God Almighty, the holy God, provides a substitute for unholy, sinful people. I promise you, in the pagan world, that was unheard of. That was unheard of. So when you look at verse 8, it's just not God saying like, come on, you know, bring me glory. This is like, I will be so happy when your sins are forgiven and dealt with. We can commune now and everybody everywhere will know that I'm the kind of God 
who forgives people by way of grace. Now, think again. Which one is more gospel-centric? Make me happy or make me known? Which one is preaching Christ? Sins atoned for? Or God saying, I just want to be happy and honored? So if Jesus, if what he said was true in John chapter 5, verse 7, the Old Testament bears witness to me. So as New Testament Christians, we look at the Old Testament and say, there he is. There he is. Which of the two bears witness to Jesus? And let's just think, and we're, gonna, we're getting close to the end. Let's give careful thought to our ways. Ask yourself, what is the main and plain thing that God wants everywhere Wants people everywhere to know. I mean, what is it? Well, you get a hint of this in Luke 7. Remember in Luke 7, Jesus is just handing out forgiveness like candy. People humbly approach him and he's like, forgiven, forgiven. And in that, he was kind of acting like a mobile temple. Wherever Jesus was, he could forgive people of sins. He could do it just like the temple could. And when the religious leaders got wind of that, they were so angry. Remember what they said? You can't forgive sin. Only God can do that. God and God, only God does that in the temple. So in that, they were essentially comparing Jesus to the temple in a less than way. They looked at Jesus, looked at the temple. Temple, great. Jesus, not so great. But what does Jesus say? He said, one greater than the temple is where? Is wherever he's at. Wherever he at. In fact, you could say Jesus was saying the honor of God's name, which begins with sins forgiven, that, that abides in me. That dwells in me. So again, what is the main and plain thing God wants every, people everywhere to know? Okay, that they are sinners, absolutely. Absolutely. That they need those sins forgiven, absolutely. That the, their entire existence in this life and past death pivots on this one thing. Sins forgiven and relies on the one act by one person so that sins can be forgiven. Therefore, if you would, let it be known he is a gracious God and that gracious God has provided the only way for sins to be forgiven. And it's not by keeping rules. And it's not by us making sacrifices. And it's not by us doing religious things. And it's not, it's not by us living a strict moral life of, you know, moral aptitude. It's only through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and his suffering and death on the cross and his mighty resurrection from the dead. And then when a person gives themselves to that, here's the beauty of it. At that moment and every moment after that, they are forgiven they are united with God. The very presence of God dwells in them. The dissatisfaction begins to wane. And the presence of God and, and the person of God, which every human being has tried to, has tried to replace with a million other deities, right? Some, some edict, some idol, some pill, some liquor and sex and work, just to find satisfaction. It only comes in one person. Jesus Christ. What did he say? He is the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He is the water that once you drink, you'll never be thirsty again. So a person doesn't find God in some building. 
They find God in one person, Jesus Christ. So when God says build the temple, he's essentially saying in New New Testament terms, declare the gospel. Declare the gospel. Let people know that sin is a big deal and it has to be forgiven and it can be forgiven, but only one way through, through me. Through me. Because in the gospel, not only is God pleased, verse 8, you see it there? Not only is God pleased, God is honored because God is clearly known. So it's no wonder when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, remember that in Matthew, the inner sanctum of the temple, there was a big thick curtain that separated the people from God. What happened to that curtain? Ripped. No more separation. No more distance. Now, unholy people are made holy by the holy act of a perfectly holy person, Jesus Christ. Now, in saying that, it stands to reason then, in order to get these people's attention, (laughs) great timing, by the way, (laughs) in order to get these people's attention, to diminish the idol of self and their paneled houses, the people who say it's not time to rebuild the temple. He messes with temporal things for good reasons to get their eyes, to get their mind on the most important thing so they could rebuild the temple. Forgive me, sins can be forgiven. And you can now commune with God in the place, the temple in the Old Testament, and in the person, Jesus Christ, in the new. And so they begin to rebuild, but we're going to have to wait till last time, if there is going to be a next time. <laughs> Sorry, it's there. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit to declare it. Thank you that when we we set our minds to you, you, you come as you are. You are splendid. You are glorious. You are merciful. You are powerful. You are caring. You're truthful. We understand that. Your wrath is a real thing. But you, you open your hands over the world and say, I can, I can deal with your problems. I can deal with your sin. I can deal with your inadequacy. I can deal with your dissatisfaction. I can deal with it. I've dealt with it in one decisive act through one person, my son, Jesus Christ. So give us the grace to let all the world know that the, the Lord Jesus Christ will not cast away people because of their sins and their infirmities and their shortcomings. He can deal with it. He can deal with it as they take those infirmities and sins and drag them to the cross so that in one moment they will be forever forgiven and in that one moment all things become new. Father, we pray in Christ's name that not only we believe that, but we would live in light of its truth. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name to the praise of his glory, asking your mercy, God, as we make our way from here to our cars, to our homes, wherever we're going today in light of the current weather condition. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>
<laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>